shopping and they are just happening my point is that as an engineer as an engineering team it doesn't preclude me from building a strong e-commerce site that's going to be my core platform i still have to do everything in my power to make that as a strong space that it can be stable enough to take regular orders so the engineering effort to chase 50 different places is hard but i feel like all teams probably first need to focus on making their core platform strong like any big project it's only going to be successful when it's a mutual success so understanding how you can talk to somebody and say we're going to do this and it's going to help you this way and we're going to need your involvement this way knowing how to have those conversations is the way to i think introduce people to these big projects and get them excited about it All right, so we all know the world of e-commerce is constantly changing. This last year being a prime example. How we shop now is so radically different than how we even shopped last year. And forget about 10 years ago, although it is pretty fun to compare how much has changed. I mean, just today I ordered a leaf blower, one day delivery. I'm looking on Instagram and TikTok and buying outfits. I could have never imagined doing this a couple years ago. So now it's all about keeping up with your customers. Which is why for our very first roundtable episode on Upnext in Commerce, I wanted to bring two people who've been on the cutting edge of the industry for years. Plus, they're friends, which makes for an awesome dynamic. I invited Ashma Segal to the show, who's a software development manager at Amazon Music, and our good friend John Feldman, a senior marketing leader for Salesforce Commerce Cloud. These two go way back to their days working together on e-commerce implementation at places like Restoration Hardware, which was a journey in and of itself. And while they still remain close friends, they actually sit on the opposite side of the fence when it comes to certain aspects of the future of e-commerce. We get into all of this in this episode, including discussing whether shopping at the edge is the future of the industry or just a passing fad, and how to get buy-in from your leadership team when selling a new implementation. I hope you enjoyed this roundtable episode as much as I did. Before we dive into this episode, I was hoping you could please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps spread the word about the show and I would really love it. So please, let me know how I'm doing and give me a rating, give me a review. Let us know. All right, enjoy the episode. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co/commerceinsights. That's sfdc.co/commerceinsights, one word. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO of mission.org. Today's episode is going to be a really fun one because it's our very first roundtable episode, and I have the perfect two guests who happen to be friends joining us on the show. First, we have Ashma Segal, who currently serves as a software development manager for Amazon. And we have John Feldman, 
a senior manager of product marketing at Salesforce. Ashma, John, welcome to the show. How's it going? How's it going? Awesome. So I heard you guys have a little background, like you've worked together in the past, and I kind of wanted to start there so people can know your relationship. Like, how do you all know each other? And maybe Ashma, I'll let you start with that. Yeah, I feel like John and I have worked together forever now. 2008, I moved to US and uh, I met John in the first company I joined. Um, It was a consulting shop. We worked together to help people build their e-commerce websites and features on it. And um, he's mentored me through that period to to help me understand better like where my interest lies. And uh, he's also helped me grow my management skills and given me opportunities as he grew in the ladder in those organizations. I kind of uh, saw some opportunities come my way as well. And then we worked together recently in restoration hardware. As a director of engineering, he and I worked together in terms of prioritization of what should be done when and working closely with the business uh, in terms of understanding how to get to the customer, how to go get features quickly to market and so on and so forth. So a lot of history there to explore. You know, my my success in e-commerce is deeply intertwined with working with Ashma. I mean, we worked very closely both at at Access Group where we did a, a zillion implementations. And then when we went to Restoration Hardware, really, you know, it we had a really, really beautiful relationship insofar as like I had the crazy ideas and she had the practical skills to do those. And so it worked really symbiotically. So I feel like we've we've seen a lot of stuff and <laughs> we, yeah. we built some systems. So yeah, really delighted to yeah. be uh, sharing this. One funny story I can tell you was we worked for Falabella in Chile and then it was a Spanish speaking org and I didn't understand as much Spanish. So I would speak my English louder. So thinking they would understand me and John would be like, why are you yelling at them? I'm like, I'm not yelling at them. They just don't understand me. So I'm trying. So those are some happy moments. I remember (laughs) that. That's wonderful. That was back at the, back at the building on Townsend or whatever. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's, that's awesome. And I mean, restoration hardware, that seems like really good company to work on, especially from like an e-commerce perspective, because when I was looking through articles and whatnot, it was talking about how they were resisting moving to e-commerce for a while. So were you guys working there when that was still, you know, undergoing when they like didn't really want to make that move or were you already past that hurdle and already ready to like start implementing things? I can go first and then John can add to that. But if restoration want, hardware wants, they, they don't want anything to do with digital. They would close their eyes and close that shop today. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality for them is they want to be beautiful. They want customers to come and touch them and feel them. They want people to experience it and then love it. And digital is a hindrance to that because digital is very removed. It's away from the customer. However beautiful an image you put on digital, the fabric is something you can't feel. And that's what they're selling. They want you to experience it. Them going into building restaurants in their business, them going into hotels, all of that is like an extension of that. But we were more of an IT shop. We were enablers for them. We were not loved and given as much money, but like still like help them run 90% of their business through auto management and so on. So we were critical to their success, but didn't get as much love, I would say. Wow. John? No, I, I totally echo that. I think that, you know, restoration hardware is at its core a luxury business and they want that luxury in-person experience. And it's, it's really interesting because it was fascinating to be there during a time when there was all this transition to digital and like everybody's like, well, of course you need these nine things. And to have like a real hard, like, no, the experience is very in-person and manual. 
I think it was really frustrating at the time, but it's really impacted my thinking since that I, I challenged the like, is shopping at the edge? Like, you know, it, it's definitely something we're seeing. There's huge growth in it, right? Like it's a big area. Certainly Salesforce can't stop talking about it. You know, from a restoration hardware standpoint, like it's growth, but is it the growth that's important for my brand? Which I, it really affected how I evaluate some of that stuff. Right, right. And, and another important thing is that we were all asked to do one day in their store and John did it and we did it. Like all of us employees did it. And it was fascinating because you could see why that was important. You could see that they wanted customers to come every day, look at a cushion and buy that and keep the relationship going. That is what they thought the bread and butter was. I met this lady who comes in every two, three months and buys a new big thing for her house. She has lots of money. And that's the 1% that they're targeting. And that's what's running their business, that they don't care about the 99%. They don't want to be digital because they don't want to be for the masses. They know who their customer is. And that's what I learned in restoration hardware, that they were so aware of who their customer was that they were very successful. Look at the stock price now, right? That's like part because they understand their customer. And we were just like, I said, enablers. So we were removed from, a step removed from that thinking and so embedded in engineering. But if you talk about business, they were geniuses, I would say. Yeah, no doubt. Gary, like he has built an unbelievable business. It is an restoration hardware. It was a very difficult place to be in IT, but it is an unbelievable business. That's cool. Were there any big projects that you remember that you felt really strongly about? You're like, this should go through and you just got like, nope. Sorry, we're not oh, doing that. Oh, oh man. <laughs> so many of those. Well, maybe like your, <laughs> maybe your favorite memory. Yeah, uh, we we brought in so many different awesome implementation op- options for mobile, and people just didn't buy it. Like it's like my cat who who knows I'm here but pretends I'm not here. Uh, it's like that. Restoration hardware acknowledges mobile is important, but just does not want to invest in it. Like our mobile experience still is. I still say our because I feel like I'm connected to the brand, but it is still sucky, right? Um, so I feel like mobile was the big, big one. And why it's painful is because we brought in so many different ways of getting it in. Like, let's do it incrementally. Let's get one page there. Let's just get on iOS. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> one of the strongest members I have is of one of the chief merchandising officers who I want to be really clear is a lovely person. I follow her on Instagram. We're still buddies. It's super great. But sitting at one of those tables in the center of innovation and whatever, it's like it's the big show building at Restoration Hardware. It's really designed if you're a vendor to be like, yo, this is the place. Holding up herself and being like, who's going to buy a couch on this? Right. And I was like, man, we got a long way to go. It just, you know, the technology is not the place these guys are hanging out. So, right. Oh, man. So, before I get into, you know, I want to dive deep into like implementation because I know you both have background in that. But before that, I would love it if, um, Ashma, if you can explain maybe your current role at Amazon and then John will go over to you just so everyone, you know, knows who we're talking to. Yeah. Um, um, like I said, I'm software development manager there. I manage teams that, um, um, run the front page of music uh, app. Uh, So my team is a full stack team, which uh, translates into iOS, Android, web engineers, as well as service stack and engineers who come together to build features for browsing, help customers uh, discover music more easily um, and highlight the personalization capabilities that we have under the hood um, and make it more obvious that the customer experience improve uh, for customer experience improvement. Very cool. All right, and John? It's awesome. Probably the highest performing team at Amazon Music, I assume. I would think so too. 
I want to work for Ashma. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Ashma took the technology path after leaving Restoration Hardware, and I was like, I can't do another project or I'll be dead. So I uh, I went into marketing, and now I do um, event content and like I do all the like the flashy video stuff for Salesforce. It's a ton of fun. It's Ashma, your worst nightmare. I am paid for thought leadership. People pay to listen to the crazy stuff I say. <laughs> All right. So I do want to dive into the implementation piece. So I want to hear a bit about, you know, we haven't actually dove that deep into that side of things on the podcast. Usually I have brands on big and small, but we don't go into the weeds there. And because you both, um, you know, have seen a lot of implementations in your career, I was hoping you can kind of go through like what makes a successful, you know, e-commerce implementation. Like, what does that look like? Any case studies? I want to kind of know how someone can, you know, make sure to put their best foot forward when thinking about that. Um, Yeah, in my experience, the best way to sell an implementation to a business stakeholder is to highlight their top three pain points. Like, what is it that you are struggling with the most? Like in case of restoration hardware, or even my current company, we would ask them, like, what are the features you wanted to get in, in 2019 and still haven't been able to get out of the door? And how can we increase velocity? Velocity is like a word business loves. They want their things out the door in front of the customers as soon as possible. That's one. Two, I feel really strongly about instrumentation and collecting metrics. If you don't know where your customer is and how they're using your site and what they're thinking as they're using your site, it just is pointless in many ways because you can't make progress in any specific area if you don't know how well or bad it's doing. Um, So those Two avenues of like velocity and instrumentation connect with business a lot. And then also giving a business a sense that we're not boiling the ocean. We're going to go slow, start at point A and take you through to point B and won't abandon you uh, mid midway. And here's how it's going to go and give them like an early peek into what an implementation uh, would look like is again, something that just um, strikes uh, a nerve with with business and I feel like they 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 understand our side of the problem. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more with with agreeing on a language from an IT standpoint with the business on how you're going to evaluate the success of it. So ahead of time, you know that like the business values this and IT values this, and is the project achieving that? Yes or no? Rather than some like because the worst situation is where people start pulling metrics as no one's ever measured out of the air, and it's like in the last week, like you know our average cart size is down eighty two cents, like. It, you can really, you can chase that rabbit pretty deep. I was just going to ask that about metrics. It seems like at least back in my like Google days, everyone was always operating in different metrics. I work with product teams and edge teams and, you know, they didn't really see eye to eye with like what was important. So how would you present that to leadership in a way that connects with, you know, everyone who's, you know, your manager or manager's manager and not just presenting business metrics that don't make sense to, you know, an engineering team who's like, well, wait, this is actually like the bigger infrastructure problem where business is like, but what about my average order size? Like, how do you think about Mm -hmm. that good balance without overwhelming them with like hundreds of metrics? Right, right. I feel like uh, I agree with John that metrics and exclusivity don't make sense. But if you connect the funnel that here's where the customer started, we can see that we have so much value in this detail page. And this is the button they're clicking the most. And if I improve this experience and reduce the number of clicks, it's going to get us this much left in the final revenue number. I feel like starting and ending, creating a story out of it mm-hmm. has the best impact. If you throw a, like a cart value number 
from the middle, maybe that won't resonate as much, but creating a story, creating here's where we start, here's where we see most value, and this is where it's going to end um, might have a better, you know, no, totally. And I think, you know, I can think of two reasons why that's important. One is that it provides a North Star for the project as it's going. So, you know, every, these projects are more than like, you know, these are multi-month projects with different stakeholders and a lot of movement in them. And so being able to touch back to like, here are the use cases that we all agreed on that we're doing, I think is really critical. The other is, and it's, it's interesting because it's sort of table stakes to the, to the, to the level you're talking about is to have a broad agreement with the business and IT about what it is you're building full stop and why you're building it. I could think of uh, an implementation we did in Emeryville, which was, you know, super lovely people, but like they were ultimately like trying to save the business by replacing their e-commerce engine. And like, as the business degraded, like the energy around, like, we're going to get this new site out. And like, all of a sudden the boat's going to to float again. Like it just doesn't bear out that way. Um, if you don't know why you're building and how that's building your business, technology alone is not going to, not going to do it. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this, go to work, Come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. I love the idea too around having to have a story for it. I don't think I've heard many, um, especially like engineering managers speak that language before, which I think is awesome. Uh, but I mean, we you know talk about that in our company all the time about like every podcast needs to be kind of told in like the hero's journey type format. Like it, even our show notes, everything needs to be told in a story. It needs to open up loops. I'd be interested to hear how you structure that, you know, to connect with other people. Like, how do you think about building a story in a way that's going to sell leadership and excite them for something that they might not be able to see, you know, like the changes that are happening after a year or so. Yeah. And I might be preaching to the choir. You guys are much better than me in this business, but I feel like you have to know your audience. If you're going into a VP discussion, your story is going to be totally different. And if I'm selling it to my senior manager, he's going to look for what is my AWS bill? what story are you telling? So knowing your audience and like creating the story based on it is super important. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to documentation and story writing. Uh, that is why all engineering managers are well-equipped in Amazon around it. But just knowing what will resonate with that particular team member is super important so that you can bring out just those facts in that conversation and and sell that specific point um, John, I don't know. Great. If you have marketing, we call those personas. <laughs> tell me more marketing talk, John. So tell me, how do you approach <laughs> that? <laughs> how do we approach aligning the stories with the persona? Yeah, it, it, I totally agree with Ashmore. You have to know your audience. You have to really be able to, it, like any big project like this, it's only going to be successful when it's a mutual success. So understanding how you can talk to somebody and say like, we're going to do this. 
and it's going to help you this way. And we're going to need your involvement this way, right? Like that, knowing how to have those conversations is the way to, I think, introduce people to these big projects and get them excited about it. But then also really being focused on like, here are the problems that this project solves for you, you know, constituent of this project. Because if there's not, if people don't have any skin in the game and there's no clear like connection between their participation and some better outcome, they're, you know, they're not going to want to do it. You know, a lot of it is, you know, people have some sort of vision of like, you know, we came in at the point where people already had a vision that they were going to do something with their e-commerce thing. And we sort of filled in the blanks of like, here's what your store would actually look like. And here's how your use case, use cases actually match into a finished product. And so I, I think that, I think she's really right that you really have to know like what the people who are consuming the information about the project need to hear to feel great about it, to feel like it's a solution yeah. to their problems. The, the other important thing to remember is the, the, the reviews that go well are the ones where you're not tackling 10 problems. I feel like you should look at your story again and find the two problems that you're trying to solve. Don't talk about 20, 10. The ones that are successful are the ones that are saying, here are my two problems, working backwards from it. Here's where we need to start. And here are the big milestones we're gonna to touch as we work towards it. So working backwards, shortening your storyline to one to two problems that you will solve and never say you will solve everything because you will never be solving everything. Yeah. There's just too many things that you could fix. As an engineer, I could find a thousand and one things to fix in a particular implementation or a system. But are you trying to save cost? If cost is your end goal, your story should be just focused on cost. If getting customer specific feature is your goal, that's what you should be focusing on. If you try to do too many things, the audience gets confused and then you don't get consensus because they're like, you're asking too much of me. Mm -hmm. I can't make all these decisions today. Um, so you, you don't get good outcomes of those conversations. Totally. I, th I think that that's a really good insight all the way around when you do an engineering project because it's particularly one of the size, right? You live and die on the success of it. And, you know, in a very real way, it sucks, but like a lot of it is also politics and the, the visioning or, or like how the perception of your project is within the company and projects that are incrementally spinning off benefits, even if they're not huge, but like reliably doing it, in my experience, get a lot more love and attention than the like, there's going to be this unbelievable bang on Thursday and everything's going to change, right? Those big bang projects, I think are can be very traumatic for everybody involved. And mm -hmm. so I think the idea that like you start with something that works and then build on top of that, rather than like, I got to get all 10 of these perfect at the same time. It, it's a really, it's a much harder climb. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last thing I would say about this is be honest and upfront about what the trade-offs are, because you're not going to make everybody happy out of an implementation. Never have I seen that in my career, making everybody happy. Um, so the prioritization is key to a success. Like I was saying, picking two problems and solving them. But even within that, you're not going to be able to fix everything, right? Um, if you set the right expectation as a consultant, as a SDM, or whoever you are in that meeting, and say, this is what I'm going to be able to do in this timeline, and this is what I'm not going to be able to deliver upfront, that might make you lose some customers but you'll probably gain more customers out of that. And I feel like that's a more honest conversation. You want trust yeah. up front. Yeah, no, I, total radical transparency, agree. being up front. You know, I, we had a mentor, Ashwin, I, who would say like, hold your client's feet to the fire. Like every time you're like, are you yeah, holding their like feet to the fire? And like that idea that all of these are partnerships and that like a strong vendor relationship is not a vendor who is complacent and like, I'll do whatever you want, but is actually like holding your feet to the fire and being like, 
if you don't do these two things, these outcomes are going to happen. And like, I'm not going to be injured the same way you are, but like, you got to get on it. Yep. Now I know where you got that line from, John. You pulled that on me last week. That's a good one. Inside baseball is Stephanie (laughs) is outstanding at holding her client's feet to the fire. Like she, like, it's really great. Cause long ago, I learned that people in business negotiations very rarely say stuff just to say it right. There's always something that happens. And I was like, this is the third time I've heard this. Like it's consistent every time. (laughs) Like, all right, I'm listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So how has the landscape changed when it comes to maybe like either replatforming or moving to digital for the first time? Like what were the, maybe the two to three biggest problems that were being solved back, you know, when you were at Restoration Hardware before then to now, like where before maybe people were focused on cost or just simple things. Like what's the focus now that people are trying to achieve when, you know, going through any kind of digital transformation or replatforming? Like what are they looking for now? I feel like, Business and engineering are looking for different goals. Engineering is looking to break down their architecture. When John and I did initial projects, most of the systems were monolithic. And there was this one giant deployment doing everything. And when it broke, everybody cried. Um, We've moved on from that world into the new brave world of Azure and AWS and every other small or big company trying to get into the buzzword cloud. But what that really means is that the implementation goal from engineering side has changed. We've felt more empowered to make small changes. Like I don't want to boil the ocean. I don't want to switch all of my implementation, but I'm going to change this part of this page and just live with it and then see how it goes. And that's a big empowerment factor because then I'm not stressed about changing everything at once, right? I can go make micro changes. From business point of view, I feel like the challenge is about understanding younger customers. And that's a totally different challenge from engineering because you have to run more user surveys. When we were doing implementations, I barely saw anybody doing user surveys and coming back to me with a product doc saying, here's what I found, this is what people want and it's gonna be awesome. It was like, oh, I have some intuition, I want incrementality and this is what we should try and do and we'll see what happens. I, I feel like business is smarter now I see many more people doing user research, user deep dives, experience deep dives ahead of time to know why they're building something, what would resonate, how do I get that 12-year-old into my service so they will stay with us until 40 and I have a continuous revenue stream. So I feel like the business landscape is changing from that point of view. John? You know, it's really interesting that you say that. Um, it, It reminds me of a million years ago, like, 2000, 2001, I was, I was at ATG, which became Oracle Commerce. Uh, and we were at some like crazy Swedish auction bidding site. And like, I'm in Stockholm. And I remember the CTO comes in and he's like, are there any features of ATG we haven't turned on yet? Cause we should turn them on. And I was like, that's bananas. And so I, you know, I, I think that that like initial, like, I just need to be online. I don't really care what it is. Cause I just need to hold the hill, like just to physically be there, I think is less important. And to Ashram's point, there's a lot more intentionality about like, I want to produce this experience for my customers. And it's tied into a larger journey rather than like, if I'm not selling online. Man, Ashley, you said two things I was really interested in. The first is that, I mean, just to say it out loud, right? You know, at Salesforce, it's not a monolith. It kind of is a monolith, right? Like we have microservices or APIs, but it's all behind the curtain. You know, it's it's all, you know, it, it, it's not like pure microservices in the way that someone else would, but relies a lot of the API stuff. 
you know, I, I hear what you're saying about engineering teams having more ability to, to make small changes and like being able to just get in and do stuff because stuff is, is more easily manipulated because there are more places. I don't know if it makes sense, but like, I think that also comes with a lot more ownership. It doesn't that mean that you need, uh, I mean, you need a, an engineering team that's capable of doing those things or you, it, you own more maintenance in that scenario. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. You, you can't microservice the heck out of your system. You have to be intentional about it. But I feel like in the last five years, our overall engineering pool of people have learned this and it's no longer an anomaly. Like more people are doing this. It doesn't matter what language you're using. You could be on C, C++, or you could be mm. on Golang. I feel like there's lots of people who have experienced it, learned it. The bigger companies are now doing it. The Walmarts are all microservice-based. So we're not no longer in the world where we, people were just experimenting with this and created hundreds of them. I feel like we're more intentional now. We've learned from our experiences. The pool of engineers we have now are more experienced. This is not a new thing for them. So I, I feel like um, I have seen maturity is the word I was looking for, that people are becoming mature in their implementation and more intentional about it. It's no longer monkeying um, with, with this new concept called Microsoft. No, totally. Like not only are there the robust skills in the marketplace, but they're design patterns as well that people can fall back on. It's not like mm -hmm. I'm now writing the very first of these ever on the internet. Right, right. Awesome. That's really interesting. The other thing I would mention from business side, which I, I really appreciate is people are trying to do one thing and one thing really well. You could go to the play uh, shoe store and you see kids' shoes. They do that awesome. I love those shoes. Or the furniture I recently bought. bought. They, this, these companies who are doing small things, less inventory, trying to make their business profitable, but doing those really, really well. I feel like that's a huge switch from e-commerce that John and I are used to where I am this shop that is going to sell everything under the sun and tell me how to sell it. And that was hard because every product is different and categorization is different. The search has complexity and those were really hard problems that we were solving. I feel like businesses are becoming smarter in deciding where they're good at and what they should be doing. So it's, you know, shopping at edge is this big idea, right? That all of a sudden you're not, you can't keep people within your website, that all of a sudden those four walls of your website are gone. And now people are going to be shopping in marketplaces or on Amazon music or, you know, at the Hertz checkout thing or you're renting your car, you can buy whatever. Right. And I think it's a compelling idea. And I think it really speaks Ashman to what you're talking about in terms of, you know, little engineering things to make it easier. Like all of a sudden, you know, now I can really easily ingest orders from the Hertz kiosk. You know, it's, it's not a big lift to do something like that. And we're seeing like crazy, crazy growth. And I think it speaks a lot to that sort of, to that engineering crowd and to the marketing idea that, um, you know, you'll have a lot of control and agility to be able to do this stuff as a Salesforce employee legitimately. Like it, it is something that we're investing in making happening, but um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how brands navigate it because certainly it's a different model than I'm used to putting on the internet and certainly different than I'm used to, to using personally. But to Ashima's point, like kids today, right? Yeah, I was gonna say, exactly what you just said, Ashima, about how now, like it used to be kind of chaotic because businesses were trying to do everything. But now to think about like, it seems like businesses have to be everywhere to sell. Like consumers want to shop everywhere. I mean, I know John mentioned shopping on the edge, that term, which we've kind of brought up a few times in the show. And I want to hear how you guys think about that, because I've talked to quite a few brands who, you know, say that consumers are on TikTok, Instagram, Pinterest, like they're over on walmart.com. They're on Amazon. How do we keep up? Like we need to be selling everywhere quickly. And maybe John, I'll let you start because I know 
you have a strong opinion that maybe doesn't? I think Ash might naturally fall on different sides on this. You know, I think in addition to, you know, brands now not like not necessarily needing to have a gigantic, like you can have a very focused set of SKUs that are easy to merchandise and understand. You also don't need to own all the software and stuff that you once did. You know, it's much easier for a brand to be like, I'm going to exist to sell beanies. They're going to be the greatest beanies in the world and assemble in like it's the, you know, the software stack for the brand stack, getting back to that, assemble the software in a way that, you know, frankly, a, a physical brand that has a lot of legacy stuff is going to have a much, much harder time following you along. I, I'm not opposed or I don't think it's a, it's something that's not happening. It is happening. Shopping on the edge is happening. My point is that as an engineer, as an engineering team, it doesn't preclude me from building a strong e-commerce site that's going to be my core platform. I still have to do everything in my power to make that as a strong space that it can be stable enough to take regular orders. So the engineering effort to chase 50 different places is hard, but I feel like all teams probably first need to focus on making their core platform strong, right? It has to be. And the second point I would make is only X percent of your customers are coming from the edge shopping. And, and that is why it's harder to understand exactly how to show your features and what will work for them. And that's where my point about user case studies might work. But the bigger bulk of customers is still going to come back into your site to explore other things that you have. So if you have X number of dollars, where would you get the most value out of them? Would it be just a shiny poster on Instagram and bringing them back to your site or putting in your engineering dollars and making that one click work from Instagram? So that's where I, 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 I struggle. What would give you the best bang for your bucks, John? And yeah. yeah. No, it's, I, I think a great point, right? I'd like when you're talking, I'm like, oh man, I definitely want that core platform that's like robust and could do anything. But then I'd, <laughs> I, I think what you're saying about user stories is ultimately the right answer though. Because when we think about core platform, I think you and I, Ash, but generally we think about like big robust server sitting in a box somewhere, like able to handle any trade, but like that's, you know, that's not what every brand's priority is, particularly some of the new ones. So yeah, we've had new brands essentially say they didn't even know if they needed a website. They were just like, if you, I'm trying to think um, who we had on, who, it was a more recent episode where they were like, well, if we're, you know, selling on Instagram or Facebook or wherever it may be, it was actually, no, it was a in, it was a bot within Facebook Messenger. And you go on there, mm -hmm. it's like a personalized bot. And then they can say, you know, this shirt would fit you perfectly and you can buy within Facebook Messenger. And she was making the point of like, why would you even need a website if you can sell within messengers or through DMs, which is like where the world is moving right now, that like, who cares yeah. what your website looks like? Which I thought was interesting. Well, it gets right back to Ashma's point about user stories, right? Which is that, you know, that ultimately it doesn't matter if you have like the, the pure in the server box of uh, e-commerce definition. If your users are all on TikTok and they're going to buy through some crazy things, then like you'd be bananas to invest in the giant server solution. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. or, or in like a traditional e-commerce solution. You want something that can flexibly follow wherever your customers are and knowing that they're probably, if you don't own the store they're in, that they're probably going to move around a lot, right? It's not going to be TikTok forever. And so you need the agility to service that. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm a little bit biased being in Amazon. Just the think big hat makes me think that I'm not just selling to TikTok customers. I'm thinking big. I have my customers everywhere. So it, it might be that for your brand, um, that might work. But for the Rotis of the world, they have to have strong presence on their own platform. And TikTok might help. I, I recently made a big purchase of um, 
uh, couches I bought from article.com. And I didn't do the shopping on the edge, but what was super helpful was to look at Instagram photos of people using that furniture in their house and how it's set up. It enabled me to buy it. So again, I was thinking like one of the, one of the investment people are making is in AI and uh, augmented re reality and so on. And I don't know if it's worth it because, you know, um, the Warby Parkers of the world, which are sending you the thing at home mm -hmm. or the Instagram approach where you're showing people how your product looks in someone else's home. I feel like that's so much more effective to me as a customer that, you know, making this guess of where my dollars should be spent is a hard problem. And I just am not fully convinced that shopping at the edge is like the, should be your end goal <laughs> if yeah. you're a big brand. No, I, I don't like, I think even in the most like robust Salesforce marketing, we're definitely not suggesting like, Turn off your channels. Shopping at the edge is the only way. 104% growth. I don't, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to be really interesting, Ashra, because as you're, you know, my kids have Amazon accounts, I think. You don't know? I don't think they've ever bought anything. <laughs> well, like, it turns out to be really, all this management of your kids' accounts, trying to keep them affiliated, like Apple, not doing a great job. Amazon, not doing a great job. <laughs> Anyways, but, you know, that's not where they go to shop for stuff. It's all social. It's really, they don't even like, you know, I'm like, I need a cable. I go immediately to Amazon. They will not that, do that's, that. That's a really great point because I feel like there's a generational gap that I am starting to understand better as my kids are growing up, living my life through them a little bit. And that's a great educational experience for all of us learning. How are people adapting to new, these new things? What are they connecting with? What are they not connecting with? And so on and so forth. So my kids don't even read books. Like it's all audible and like, I'm going to listen to story right. and epic. So like the life is very different. And why I call shopping at the edge of fad is it's, it's working really well for this generation, but for how mm. many years, the next thing is going to replace it is my opinion. And that's why having a core strong platform will get you over this hump into the next one. Um, as long totally. as you what do you think could be the next thing now? It's like piqued my interest of like, what do you see coming after, you know, shopping at the edge? It just dies. No one does that anymore. What are they going to be doing next then? I have started to see people use uh, Airbnb experiences and Amazon Explore experiences a lot. Like uh, uh, just yesterday, a friend of mine said they gifted their friend, uh, their wife, of a Valentine's gift of, of a tour in Coyote, somewhere in Korea. I'm not saying the name right. Korea. But it was awesome. Yeah, it was wow. awesome. Like this person walked through the markets for them. They could show them the product or like it was a very personalized tour. So I thought that's like the that's next cool. big thing. And even an e-commerce opportunity, like if you're buying from here uh, in a shop in Korea and they can ship it to you, like how unique is that? I, I think there's lots of potential. And then uh, doing online experiences, like I'm going to do a cooking class with you and then I'm going to buy all of these pots and pans and knives from you because it looked awesome. Mm -hmm. I feel like that could be the next big thing. No doubt. Cause we've got this live shopping demo that we do, which is that it's like, we have, um, it's funny. Cause I thought of you when I narrated, I was like, Oh man, Ash was going to be like, this is never going to happen. <laughs> but it's that like, there's an influencer and like, you can buy stuff on the side. And I was like, oh. I like that. I mean, I do think that's the way to go. Yeah. I mean, I think about, we had um, someone saying that they, oh, it was uh, Andrea from IdeoClick. She, teaches or does something with Harvard Business School on like e-commerce and stuff. And she was mentioning they had an influencer from China come in and show, you know, what shopping looks like and what her fans do. And it was like within three minutes, she'd racked up like hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales of like 
a Harvard sticker. And they were like, that's the power, which is insane to me. I mean, I, I, I I get it. I buy shirts and clothes and all this stuff on Instagram. I'm like, oh, they kind of remind me of myself and that shirt's cute. So I get it, but maybe not to that level. Yeah. But I, I, I I use Airbnb a lot. We go out a lot. And uh, one of the things that I really uh, enjoy is that uh, something that that person is using in their house, I sometimes come back and buy it because I've experienced it. I've worked with it for two, three days and I loved it. And I'm like, oh, I should have this fixture or I should have this knife or I should have this other thing that I've experienced now, lived with it. And I feel like that's such an awesome way to promote product where you can touch and feel it and experience it, pay no extra cost, but then also buy it if you really like it. Uh, If Airbnb uses it, they should give me some money, but (laughs) yeah, where's (laughs) where's that affiliate code, Airbnb? Come on. I think you're really right. And I also think about Twitch, right? Because, you know, I, I do some DJing stuff and so I'm on Twitch a lot. And there's not only this sort of intersection between like product buying, but also in terms of like, you know, sort of rewarding the influencer directly with cash, right? That you're in sort of an experience where you're like, this is so great. I love being here. And like, they're also selling stuff. I don't know. How are you guys thinking about retail then when talking about like touching and feeling things and experiencing that? Obviously, you know, retail hasn't been at the forefront lately. Like, how are you guys thinking about that? That's why all these predictions are really a little a little tricky because this physical digital thing is all screwed up or not screwed up, but it's right now vastly impacted by the pandemic. And that's incredibly changed everybody's shopping habits. I mean, I bought stuff online and never buy again. And so I, if I'm really honest, like I'm not sure the Twitch DJ scene outlives clubs opening, right? Like, and so I'll talk about how like Twitch is going to change the world and it's all great, but like, I don't know if people are going to hang out online all day if they can like go once a week. Um, yeah, there's pent up demand. I'm ready to get out. <laughs> Yeah, like everybody's I'll whatever you're DJing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like um, this is a blip. I feel like retail and in-person shopping is going to come back with a vengeance once things open up. We all get vaccinated and be safe. Um, I, I genuinely think this is a blip. I feel like retail is going nowhere. It's going to be back. Restoration hardware is all ready for it, I'm sure. Totally. Do you think it'll shift the marketplace, right? Because I like... I agree. I think we're going back to in-person something, but like, you know, the Best Buy down the street has evolved so many times during the pandemic. Like they were a fulfillment center, then they were a store, then they were like outside only. And I like, I just don't know that retail space, like it makes sense for Best Buy to have that big retail store and not have it be a hybrid model. So like, I agree it'll come back, but like, I don't know if it's gonna be the same. Yeah. Yeah. With, with Fry's stores closing last Mm. week, which was a sad event in my household, my husband loves fries. Um, that, that was so, really sad. <laughs> it's a bad day. Yeah. So you're absolutely right that it's going to look different. It's going to be more personalized as I think we, we discussed before. It will look different. There's also going to be a disparity. The big guys are going to have the money. They're going to come back in the same way. The targets, the Walmarts, they're going to be the same. The little guy or the medium guy has to make some um, bets at what will get them through this hump and keep them going. Um, I, I don't see a Rothy's store coming up um, near me, even if they were planning to. I think those plans will be delayed. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like some of it is going to come back the same way it was earlier. Yep. Yeah. The one thing that we keep hearing is more about curation when it comes to stores is that people are going to want to go there for an experience. And, you know, you go to a pottery barn, you go to a West Elm, whatever it may be. And you're like, this is my space. This is my style. I come here because I don't want to think. But then I also think about me where I'm like, I go into a TJ Maxx and it's just like all over the place and I thrive there. I'm like, this is my spot. You find something fun and I don't know what to expect. So I think it just kind of depends on the shopper. 
I love that comment because it's very hard to create a Marshalls online. It's just people don't have the patience of going through things and things mm. online. Uh, this this feeling of hunting and finding gold in that pile, that's going to stay with us. Again, there's a demographics that loves it and that demographics is waiting for vac- being vaccinated to get out there. Yep. And you think that that, that digital like uh, needle in a haystack experience doesn't exist in the same way it does like it's like i'm in tj maxx i found this unbelievable bargain it doesn't it, it, it does in some cases uh, where you you guys are talking about instagram and finding something that you didn't even know existed yeah um sure it does but not in the same way um finding the five dollar t-shirt that you didn't even know exists in tj maxx is like oh yeah that's no wrong. like today's my day hey walking out of that store snapping <laughs> I mean, at least me. Maybe not John. He looks very confused by well, our no, conversation. I, no, <laughs> yeah, it's cool. There's knows. a Ross up here. I know what's up. Like Ross, though? Uh, do you? Ross is like the quit. You could get anything because, you know, Ross is like a second store, right? It's just like lost inventory. So anything can be there. It's extra lost. It's like no one goes in there because <laughs> it's <so> lost. <laughs> All right. Yeah, totally. Well, Ashma, John, this has been an amazing roundtable. So fun having you guys on. We'll definitely have to do it again. Where can people find out more about your work? Ashma, maybe we'll start with you. Where can people find more about you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. A lot about me, um, things I write or things that uh, are relevant to me. So LinkedIn is, is the right place. Amazing. All right, John, what about you? Where can people find out more about your work? Yeah, totally. LinkedIn is a great place or like just search for Salesforce in my name. I write a lot of Salesforce stuff. He's got a lot of yeah. stuff. Number one He's blog ever. Hey, it is. Stuff. Number one performing blog. Yep. And you have an amazing state of commerce report. Everyone should check it out. It has a lot of cool trends in there. Um, we've referenced it a few times in our newsletter. And it is very helpful for anyone who's either trying to start an e-commerce shop or, you know, trying to transform and you're a big brand. I've seen them all. So thank you guys so much for joining the show. And we will see you next time. Thank you very thank you. much. Take care. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.